Mark 10, starting in verse 13. It says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, this morning, we are going to meet two different groups of people. One of them that is embraced by God, which is what we all want, and one of them who will walk away from God. In verse 13, we see our first group. It says they were bringing children to him, that they might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. So our first group here is babies. Everyone loves babies, right? You see in this text that there is a group of people, probably their parents, that are trying to bring babies to Jesus, and the disciples start, like, boxing them out. The disciples don't want the babies near Jesus. Well, natural question is, okay, why? Why don't the disciples want the babies near Jesus? Well, in this culture, babies were viewed as insignificant and useless for society. Simply, babies don't contribute to the needs of the world. And honestly, and give me some grace here, that's kind of still true today, right? Because what do babies do? They cry, they eat, they poop, and they sleep, right? They don't contribute anything. Babies are nothing but need. One rabbi from this time said, wise men should avoid three things, morning sleep, midday wine, and the chatter of babies. That was how they viewed Babies. Now, we love babies. Hold on. Babies are going to get some praise in a minute, okay? (laughs) 
Back in December, Katie and I went to Colorado with her family, and her sisters and brothers have a ton of babies. I mean, it is, they are out of control over there in the Ralston home, okay? And um, we went to Colorado, and they thought it would be a great idea for all of us to spend a week in Colorado in a cabin, trapped there because there's snow everyone, everywhere, and no one wants to go outside. And at no point did one of her nieces or nephews pop up and say, you know, I have some thoughts about the housing market, right? Like, none of them contribute to anything. What we did on our vacation was dependent on when they ate, um, when they napped, and when they went to the bathroom, right? So our whole lives, even though we don't have kids, were centered around them, and we loved it, okay? We loved it. And the disciples here essentially say, get those babies out of here. They are a waste of time. But Jesus will take what we think is right, and like he always does, he turns it upside down. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And in one moment, he shows, one, that there is value to children, to babies, which in that culture, they were not valued. And two, he flips their understanding of what the kingdom of God is upside down. All in a moment, when he says he was indignant, I mean, that means he was firm. He was He was stern. He says, no, you bring the children to me. He says, the kingdom belongs to those that are like these, those that are like these babies. In 15, he says, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them. He says, we have to be like these babies in order to receive the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that you should have childish behavior or that you should have simplistic thinking or an immature faith. The key word in verse 15 is the word receive. So underline it, circle it, whatever you want to do, it's the word receive. Babies, think about it, are completely dependent on someone else for survival. In order to survive and to be satisfied, they need guidance, they need love, they need care from someone outside of themselves. And think about it, we are no different. Babies are the perfect picture of who we are before Christ. We are weak. We offer nothing. We are completely dependent on him. Completely dependent. And it's only when we come with that kind of mindset that we will receive the kingdom of God. So do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You want to be one of his children? You come to him with empty hands, offering nothing, humble, with nothing but need. God, I can't do this. I need you. I have nothing to offer you. I need you to care for me. To that kind of person, that's who the kingdom belongs to. Pick me up when I'm crying. Feed me when I'm hungry. Care for me because I can't care for myself. The kingdom belongs to people who can honestly admit their need for God, their absolute Need And so that's the question I have for us before we jump into the rest of this text is, are you, are we aware of our need? Like, do you know, do you feel your need for Christ? Like in your bones, do you feel it? That every morning you wake up and it's on the forefront of your mind, I need him to survive this day. Too many of us go through life too comfortable and too bored. We go from one distraction to another trying to find some sort of happiness and satisfaction in life. And you know this. You know it in your mind, right? None of it works. None of it works. And at minimum, we can, minimum, we can all admit 
that in this life, it's broken. The system is broken. There's something in us that's broken. That all of us go through life with this constant need just beating at us. This need to be happy, this need to be loved, this need to be cared for. And that's why we waste our money on things that we don't need. Right? Because we think if I can build a life, some sort of life that fills my needs, then I will be happy. But in the middle of our desire for this comfort, this fake comfort, is a reality, this feeling that we aren't loved, that we aren't happy, that we aren't cared for because something isn't right, it's broken. And so I wonder how many of us in this room have spent our entire week just exhausted. You're exhausted. You're exhausted because you know that something isn't right. You're constantly trying to fill your life with things that just can't satisfy. So at the beginning here, before we jump into this next story, it's understanding this next story, understands with, with what happens here with the babies. Understanding our need. And there is a satisfying humility and if you've experienced this, experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. A satisfying humility when you get on your knees, look to your God, and tell him in absolute full brokenness. God, I need you. Have you experienced that? It's a different thing. When you feel like everything in your life has been stripped away and you have a perspective of, no, I need him. I absolutely need him. And now in our text, we are introduced to a a man who was the polar opposite of that group. Verse 17, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Mark gives us limited information about this guy. All three, three synoptic gospels give us this story, which is significant, by the way. Matthew tells us that he was young, Luke tells us that he was a ruler, so he has authority, and all three Gospels tell us that he was rich. So this is the guy that if you asked every single person on the planet, and they were honest, hey, what do you want to be like? Who do you want to be? If they were honest, they would say, I want to be like this guy. People want to be young. People want to be rich. People want to have power. Maybe a better way to say that is they want to have influence. People want to be well thought of, and that's this guy. <clears throat> now, we don't know any of this in Mark yet. He's going to tell us that he is rich later, but all we know at this point is that this guy is earnest. He's earnest. He runs to Jesus. He kneels down, and then he asks him a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when the rich young ruler addresses Jesus as good teacher, we get a little insights, okay, on how this guy really views Jesus. For the longest time, Jesus' response to this question, if you look at it, it, it can be kind of confusing, right? And I wonder if it's confusing to you. Like, this guy, he asks a legitimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's on his knees. He's asking this question. It's a question that we should all be asking. And Jesus kind of gives him a snarky response, right? He's like, well, why do you call me good, right? <clears throat> he says, good teacher wants to do inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what's that about, right? There's a couple things about how this guy addresses Jesus that are really strange, right? And it's helpful to understand. First is that this guy calls Jesus teacher, 
which means rabbi. And it gives us this, some insight on who this guy thinks Jesus is. <coughs> if you look back at Mark 8, go to Mark 8, verse 27. This is just two chapters before, okay? And I love this text. Um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's talking with his disciples, and it says in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. <coughs> and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So Jesus asked his disciples, who, when you're walking around town, when you're going to the grocery store, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they say, hey, they say you're a prophet. They say you're a teacher. They say that you're a spokesman for God. And not only that, they think you're one of the premier prophets, like the best of the best, like maybe John the Baptist or Elijah reincarnated. But then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. They say, we think you are the guy that our people has been waiting for for hundreds of years. We think that you are God. So in Mark 10, when Jesus is addressed as good teacher, being identified as a teacher is insufficient. It's insufficient here. He's not just some dude that teaches some kind of moral code that we can evaluate and then decide for ourselves if we like what he says. That's not how it works. He's God in the flesh. His word is authoritative. His word is the end of it. He's God. It's not optional. So when our boy calls Jesus teacher, what does that tell us? I think it tells us that he thinks that Jesus is a man. I think he thinks he's a man, just a man. He doesn't call him Christ. He calls him teacher. And more than that, he calls him good teacher. Okay? <clears throat> Sorry. The way, that way of addressing a rabbi as good was never used and has never been used in any literature during the time of Jesus or before Jesus. No one refers to anyone as good teacher. That's not how rabbis are referred to. And you say, okay, well, why is that? Why is that weird? Well, think about it. If you read through the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, you will notice that after Genesis 2, after the fall of man, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree, there is not one part where man is called good. Only God is called good. Only God is called good. And the guy, this guy in verse 10, reveals something when he calls Jesus good teacher. He reveals something about his belief system. He believes that a man can be good. Pay close attention to his question now. What must I do to inherit eternal life. You see it? As if there is a lifestyle that we can live that makes us good enough to inherit eternal life. The assumption there is that if I do something well, if I do enough of something, then I can get it. So Jesus is going to respond, not really directly to this guy's question, but rather specifically to the guy's assumptions about who Jesus is. And it's fascinating. What he does in this moment is he begins the process of reconfiguring this guy's belief system. He essentially says, you have a core misunderstanding about the nature of goodness, about the nature of 
badness. You think that goodness is something that you can't achieve. Your understanding of what good is and what bad is, is flaws. And this guy, I mean, he says he knows the law. He should have realized what Jesus was alluding to. Like Psalm 14, verse 2, just one example. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any, this is Psalm 14, 2, to see if there are any who understand, who, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good. And this guy should have realized, hey, you're right. Goodness is an inherent quality of God. Only God is good. Man is not. There is not one who does good. Not one. So if goodness is a quality of God, then I don't have it. I'm a man. And Jesus is pushing against the moral game of, okay, if I do certain things, if I follow these rules, then I will be defined as a good person. And goodness is not defined by how well you follow rules. I don't know if you know that. Goodness is defined by how you relate to Jesus. That's how your goodness is defined. This guy is thinking good action, and Jesus is trying to help him understand, no, 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 all that matters is how you relate to the one who is good. That's what matters. Our goodness can only be found in God. That's it. It's not something we grab. It's not something we chase. It's something we receive by the grace of God. So Jesus asks him the question, why do you call me good? And the guy, he, he doesn't respond. I don't, I don't know if he, if he didn't say anything or they didn't write it down, but he doesn't say anything. So Jesus steps into the role of rabbi regardless, and he begins to teach them. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. And he goes on. And it's interesting, Jesus lists the second half of the Ten Commandments here. The commandments where we can measure how we are doing in this moral game. And you can picture the rich young ruler standing there thinking to himself, well, have I murdered anyone? No. Have I committed adultery? No. And he just goes through the list. Now, we know this guy's, what this guy's answer should have been because it would have been well known what Jesus taught at the Sermon of the Mount, Right? You may not have angered someone, but have you had anger? I mean, you may not have murdered someone, but have you had anger? You may not have committed adultery, but have you had lust? But what does this guy say? He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And he claims that he has upheld the law since he was a kid. And it's interesting. If you look at how your Bible, I don't know if you know this, if you look at how your Bible is laid out, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, it's always followed by what book? Leviticus. Okay? And that's for a reason. Leviticus is the book that teaches you how to sacrifice. That's not an accident. Because the idea was you're going to read the law, you're going to realize that you can't keep the law, and that you need forgiveness. You need a sacrifice. And if we aren't holy, if we cannot be in the presence of God because of our sin, we need a sacrifice to wipe away that sin. So Deuteronomy and Leviticus work together to present essentially the gospel, the foreshadowing of the Messiah. And this guy stands in front of God in the flesh, claiming that he has earned his righteousness. But did you notice? Even though he is claiming his righteousness, he's still asking the question. He's still asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If he was so sure that he had upheld the law, why does he need to ask the question? It doesn't make any sense. Because he knows. He knows in his 
bones. Something's not right. Something isn't right. He's us. He's us. We try so hard to earn the smile of God, to earn the kingdom of God. And at the end of the day, we are still so tired. We're exhausted because we can't earn it. And there are so many believers across so many churches, man, who are trapped by exhaustion. This exhaustion of legalism, where if you do your quiet time in the morning, then God will smile upon you. But if you don't do it, he's going to smite you, right? And you feel like he, he doesn't love you. You feel like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like you. This idea where if I do these things for God, then God likes me. If I don't do these things for God, then God doesn't like me. That's not how it works. You have no assurance, no confidence in the gospel, no confidence in faith. And this guy comes to Jesus and he says, I've done it all, but he has no peace. He has no assurance. He knows something isn't right. And then in verse 21, it says, Jesus, looking at him, I love this part, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Man, if you are trapped in a cycle of just exhaustion, drink those words in. This guy, he's blind. (laughs) He's arrogant. Time and time again, so are we. Time and time again, we see our works, we see the world, but we miss him. And even in this guy's blindness, Jesus has compassion on him. He's kind with him. And he has compassion with us as well. And it says, looking at him, he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Hey, everything that you think makes you worthy, get rid of it all and follow me. What's Jesus doing here? I think he's doing two things. He's trying, one, he's trying to get this guy out of the mindset of earning. This guy has earned everything. He's earned his reputation. He's earned his money. He's earned everything he has, and Jesus wants to crush that mindset. He wants him not only to repent of the bad things that are clear, but also the good things. Because time and time again, we use the good things of the world to mask what we all know in our hearts, that we need Jesus. All of us, we have these little saviors, right? These little saviors that we think make us righteous. Maybe it's our money. Maybe it's how much we go to church. Maybe it's beauty, right? You say, I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful, and so I found my value and my worth in beauty. Same thing with money. I found my value and my worth with money. I'm giving a lot of it away. This is where I contribute. This is why God loves me. These things that we think make us valuable to God. And you give and you try and you you try to build these little saviors up to say, God, don't you see? Don't you see how good I am? Don't you see how much worthy I am? Don't you see what I do with my career? Don't you see how I love my kids? Don't you see how I love my spouse? Don't you see? God, look. It doesn't work. At the end of the day, you're still exhausted. God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Look, man, when you enter the kingdom, on that final day, the last thing you're going to do is show him your little stack of saviors. You're going to point to the only savior. And you're going to say, I'm here because of him. And that's it. We come with empty hands. Say, God, I need you. So we repent of blatant sin, like hate, bitterness, anger, adultery. But we also repent of our attempt to stack up all of our good deeds in order to earn the approval of it all. Jesus says, let go of it. Let go of it. He 
He's getting this guy out of the mindset of earning. That no, look, you come with empty hands. The other thing that's interesting about this moment is that it's centered on money. Like the, the topic of the conversation is money. And many have, people have used this passage to say, don't you see, we just need to sell all of our stuff. Everybody sell all of their stuff, right? No one should have anything. Jesus said so. Why, is, why tell this guy to sell everything? It seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, couldn't Jesus have said, hey, man, look, if you just give away 10%, right? You give away 10% and then come follow me. Then we're good, right? No, he tells him everything. I'm sure he wishes he was Peter, right? Jesus tells Peter, hey, leave everything and follow me. Peter's like, okay, I'll leave my net, right? No big deal. Why is Jesus doing that? Jesus is shifting the conversation to what really matters. What matters in this moment is not moral action, but rather the heart's affection. What matters is not moral action, but the heart's affection. Jesus says, you lack one thing. But then it's interesting, he gives him five verbs. He says, go, sell, give, come, follow. That's five things. So what's the one thing he lacks? See, it's not about the selling of his stuff. It's much deeper than that. He wants him to stack everything up that this guy thinks is valuable to him. And he wants this guy to look at Jesus and say, yeah, you're better than all of that stuff. It's about the heart's affection. I only want you. Jesus isn't looking for moral action here. He's looking for a kingdom, who, a people who will say, no, you are my king, and I will treasure you, and I will sell everything I have to buy the field that that treasure is buried in. Christianity, it's not about a list of rules. It's not about do this and don't do this. It's looking in Jesus and proclaiming with our lives, you know what? We have a better king. We have a better treasure. And that means when he does ask you to sell it all, you say, gladly. Gladly. That's why in Matthew 22, the, the, he says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord with your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And so here's the question. When you get up every day, when you go throughout your day, what does your heart beat fast for? What do you get excited about? What do you work towards? Like when you think about it, you feel the excitement about that thing in your chest. And it could be something that's inherently bad or inherently good. Like maybe it beats fast for a certain sin. Like the temptation to look at something on your phone that you're not supposed to and your heart beats fast for that or the bitterness that comes from the anger that you hold towards somebody else for what they did. And it feels good. Your heart beats fast when you sit in that moment and you feel good about, man, just the, the bitterness that you hold on to. Maybe it's money. Maybe your heart beats fast for money. Maybe it's influence, power. And you say, okay, this guy, is he really asking Jesus to sell everything? Is he really asking that? It seems crazy. You know, it's not that crazy. Think about every romantic comedy you've ever seen, right? Think about it. Like, our, our world understands this, right? For, at the end of the story, that it's a guy willing to give up everything for that girl. Think about your wedding day or your future wedding day, Right? Think about that beautiful day standing in front of all of your friends and family. You're standing in front of your friends and your future husband. They're about, he's about to give his vows. You start to tear up and he proceeds to tell you, I will love you for the rest of my life as long as you don't touch my money. Right? 
you will be a solid number two right underneath my money, okay? Did you do that? Girls, would you have stayed with him if he would have? No, you're like, get out of here. I want you to sell everything for me, right? She wants to be treasured. She wants to be treasured. It's no different for us. He wants us to sell everything, to say, I will treasure. He wants all of you, all of your time, all of your money, all of your possessions. He wants even your future. To look at everything and say, Jesus, all I need is you. Only you can satisfy. The essence of the goodness, the essence of goodness is worship. The only one who's good. It's worshiping the only one of good. The essence of evil, it's not about moral action here. The sin here is the rejection. That this guy looked at Jesus and he rejected him. So, and even if Jesus came to you and he said, hey, you want to be in my kingdom, sell everything right now. Sell your house, sell your stuff, sell your car, sell it all. If you did all of that, and you pointed at him and said, see, I did all that. Is that enough? No, it's about the heart's affection. It's not about the stuff. It's about your heart. Now, let me be clear here. Can he or is he asking you to, to sell things, to get rid of possessions? If you want to go literal here, he might be. He absolutely might be. I don't know. That's for you to examine and to figure out, is he asking you to sell your stuff and move overseas and bring the gospel to an unreached people group? I hope so. Like, to be honest, I pray for that. I pray that God would raise up men and women from families, from this faith family, that would say, we're selling it all. And we're going to the place where there are no churches, no believers, there is no gospel, it is only dark, and we're bringing the light. I pray that that would happen. So can he ask you? Might he ask you one day to sell everything that you have? He might. I, I don't know. But here in this moment, the rich young ruler can't do it. In verse 22, it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Picture this moment in your head. It's a heavy moment. Like you can literally picture the guy's face falling to the ground. I don't know if you've ever been with someone where they just, where you saw their demeanor change. They just, they just got sad. You can see it happen. And he looked at his comfort, he looked at his prestige, his money, and he said, I can't do it. And he rejects Jesus. He's convinced himself that his stuff is better than Jesus. And let me ask you the question. What's lacking for you? If Jesus were to say to you, you lack one thing, what would that one thing be? What does the Holy Spirit bring to your mind? Maybe it is a sin. Maybe it is a sin Maybe it's a good thing that wasn't created to be bad, but you have made it into a little savior. When your love for Christ and your love for something else comes into conflict, which one will you choose? When it happens for this guy, he chooses his money. And then it gets crazy. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God of God. The disciples are shocked here. They're amazed, and you're like, okay, why are they so shocked? Well, that was contrary to their understanding about how money related to God. In this time, wealth was a sign of the blessing of God. If you're moral and you follow God, you get 
prosperity. If you do what God commands you to do, then he will bless you. And Jesus says, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait, what? Are you serious? They don't understand it. So Jesus sees a response and he just dials it up. In verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says they were exceedingly astonished. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this. Some people have tried to talk about this passage by saying, well, it's not a literal needle. I don't know if you've heard this, but Jerusalem's walls had these really narrow gates and it was just really hard for a camel to get through. But if you take their load off and the camel held its breath and you push the camel, it can get through. It's not, it's not impossible, but, but, but it can happen, right? Or they'll say, it's not a literal camel. The Aramaic word for twine sounds a lot like the Aramaic word for camel. So what Jesus is really saying is that it's very difficult to get twine through the eye of a needle. If you've ever heard that, that is just plain wrong. It's wrong. Those aren't facts. In fact, the first one, tourists in the Holy Land made it up so that Americans would give them more money, okay? It's just not true. And here's why, here's why. That would not have left the disciples exceedingly astonished. Exceedingly astonished. He actually said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To help make sense of it, think of it like this. Say, okay, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to swim fast. So you're like, how fast? Like Michael Phelps fast. You're like, oh, I can't do that. It's impossible, right? Disciples say, okay, then who can be saved then? If, if that person can't be saved, then who can be saved? And here's the key moment in this entire text. In verse 27, he says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. You see that? But not with God, for all things are possible with God. He says, no man can do this. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You cannot earn the kingdom of God. No work you can do can make your heart treasure him more than anything else. You can't do it. You can't make yourself love something if you don't love it. How many of you love calculus? The like two of you that just raised your hand probably got a calculator for Christmas, right? There's something wrong with you. But for the rest of us, we can maybe make ourselves do it, but we're not going to love it, right? You, never going to happen. It's only through God only through God that we can enter the kingdom of God. And it's only God who changes our hearts. Essentially, Jesus is saying, for that guy to love me more than money, it's impossible. It cannot happen. And it's the same for us. You and your own power, you cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself love Jesus. You cannot give yourself a new heart. But God can. He can do it. With man, it is impossible but not with God. There's the same theme through all of these verses. You cannot do it. You cannot earn it. You have to be dependent, admit your need, and receive grace. Receive love. So hear, hear me. Whatever that thing that tempts you, whatever is lacking in your life, you cannot overcome it. You cannot choose to just be done with lust. You cannot choose to just be done with bitterness, or to be addicted to money, or power, or influence. You can't just white-knuckle your way to holiness. So you say, okay, well, what do I do? What do I do? And you pray. 
and you ask God to stir your affections. That when you stack it all up, the bad, the good, and you see him, you say, yeah, there's no debate here. He is better. That he is objectively more better than the things in your life that try to grab your attention. So asking God, change my heart. You can't do it, but he can. And he doesn't promise to fix your circumstances. That's not the promise. The promise is in the midst of those circumstances, he will give you peace. He will give you confidence. So here we get Peter, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and we followed you. Remember, the disciples, they're all watching this go down. They see this guy who's the pinnacle of success, success, the guy they thought had it all together, and they see him walk away sad. And he says, well, what about us? We did leave it all. I love this moment. Peter here, he's, he's looking for assurances because he has left it all. He has followed Jesus. He has not only given his, his possessions, not only morally has he followed Jesus, but he's given his heart to Jesus. And I love what Jesus tells him. He says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands. So he says, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I'm sure there are people in that crowd, and I'm sure there's people in this crowd that look at this and go, oh, you want me to lose it all for him? Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. And some of you, honestly, that's your story. You've lost family because you came to Jesus with empty hands, said, I love you, you are better. Some of you have lost jobs. I know this. Some of you have lost jobs because of your faith. Some of you, maybe that hasn't happened, but you live in fear that one day you might lose your career because of your faith. And Jesus tells Peter, and he tells us, you may lose for my sake and for the gospel, but what you will receive is so much better. It's so much better. And he says, you're going to gain. You lose a mother, you're going to gain mothers. Look at it. Mother is singular in that first part. It's plural in the second. You lose a mother, you're going to gain mothers. You lose your father, you're going to gain fathers. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. You have a new family now. And he says, with persecutions, the world will hate you because they don't understand. Your faith is foolishness to him. But he says you will also gain eternal life. You have him. And that's what matters. Here's what's interesting. Jesus isn't asking this guy and the disciples to do anything that he isn't willing to do. Think about it. I didn't read these verses at the beginning, but if you look at, go down in your Bible, they're not going to be on the screen, go down to verse 33. He's not asking anything of anyone else that he hasn't done. Verse 33, the next moment, right, two verses later, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. This section of Mark, it's called the journey to Jerusalem because over and over again it says, as, they were on, as he was on his way, as he was on his way, he's going to die. See, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days, he will rise. Again, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to give up everything. 
He's the son of man. Remember when Tristan preached in Daniel 7? The one coming on the clouds to judge and rule the earth. He's the king. He's the Messiah. And he loses it all. He gives up everything. God himself, the king, dies. And he beats death. And he raises from the grave. Do you see it? He's the true rich young ruler. That's the story. Jesus is the true rich young ruler who left it all. He gave it all up for the glory of God. 